So I'm here with Justin Wilson, mayor of Alexandria, Virginia, and uh, Justin's kindly offered to join us on the podcast to talk a little bit about the state of politics, the difference between federal and municipal politics, political polarization, social media, all that good stuff. Um, but I just want to start by saying, hi, Justin, how's it going? It's going great. It's going great. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'd like to start just with a, a general overview of your political perspective, because I, I think it helps to situate things a little bit out the gate. Can you can you kind of give us a quick overview of what you see as the state of politics today, what's working and what's not working? So, uh, I guess I'll say this. Um, as, as someone who's been um, involved in politics in some way, shape or form for since I was really 10, so 30 of my 40 years, I'm, I'm pretty, I would say I'm pretty, uh, pretty down on the state of politics right now. I think it's, it's a little frustrating. I, I, I think we're, we're at a strange, a strange place in our, in our, in our system at the moment. And I, I know that we go through kind of peaks and, and valleys over time, but um, it's, it's, it is a little frustrating right now. I take solace in the fact that for the most part at local government, things still, still work. But um, certainly at the at the federal level, and even even occasionally at the state level, it's uh, it's a little demoralizing right now. Um, and I, you know, I I get particularly frustrated in in the fact that you know, for both of my kids, you know, they're coming of age in in this time, and I think this is what they're learning is is kind of the norm of of politics and and political life, and. You know, I, I try to show them something different here in Alexandria, but you know, and listen, they have the TV on every day, right? They're watching on their phones and whatever else, and talking to their friends, and so they're seeing this, what's going on at least nationally, and and accepting this as norm. And and I worry, quite honestly, that they they assume that what's going on is 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 what I'm involved with, you know, which, which is which is very different. So. Yeah, so I think some of it's a little demoralizing. I I do see signs of hope. I mean, I and sorry, do you mind if I just ask you, sorry, specifically, what it is that you find demoralizing? Like, is it the the social media? Is it the is it polarization? Is it some combination of the two? Well, certainly, the polarization is frustrating, and the fact that um, our system at the moment does not seem to allow anything to happen. We are at a point where. I, and I, I, I can't be for sure that it's voters because I don't think it is voters explicitly weighing in on this, but I think our, um, our public discourse does not allow compromise, does not allow accomplishment, like political accomplishment. It, in fact, it, it seems to uh, not reward those, but punish those who figure out a way to get things done. And I, and I think that's, that's pretty frustrating. It's uh, cause I mean, I'm in this, you know, I'm in this business cause I want to get things done. I, you know, we say, right, there's two types of people in politics. You got people who want to be something and do something. And I'm, I'm in the do something group. You know, I, I, I don't intend to do this forever. Um, but, you know, I have kind of in my mind things I would like to get accomplished and um, working to, to get them done. And, and, you know, in local government, that can still happen. I, I have a lot of friends who work in federal and state government. And, I, you know, certainly the folks in federal, you know, there's not really there's not really the ability to do that right now. Where do you think that inability to move the ball forward comes from? Like, is it an unwill, a reluctance on the part of the political class? Or is it the way that that such a move would be received, let's say, by the voters or that it would be seen to be received on social media or wherever else? You know, it, it's funny. I, I'll give you an example, right? I, I remember in you know, we had a, you know, because of the nature of this district, we had a very heated, um, I think it ended up being five or six way by the time we finally got to the primary, but a five or six way Democratic primary for uh, the nomination. And, you know, I remember one of the, uh, one of the unsuccessful candidates was uh, attempting to, you know, take pot shots at, at the person who was ultimately successful, our now congressman. And this was leading up to the primary. And, you know, he was like, I remember at one of these events, he's like, you know, you know, he's going to get there and he's going to make a grand bargain. You know, he's going to make a grand bargain on all of these issues. And I'm sitting here thinking like, why the heck is that a bad idea? Right. <laughs> like, like, that would be pretty awesome. You know, if, if, if a bar member of Congress went to Washington and, and, uh, and, uh, and made a big deal on a bunch of uh, large intractable issues that are facing our, um, our country. But I think, unfortunately, the 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 nature of these, um, particularly Democratic and Republican primaries right now, is such that um, that kind of problem solving, that kind of deal making, is really reviled, and and that's frustrating. Um, that's that's really really frustrating because I think that's ultimately what 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 moves the country forward, and 
if we don't have space in our politics for that kind of deal making, then shame on us, right? This general sense that there's not progress being made politically or, or in policy terms, to some degree runs up against the some of the more significant policy proposals that we have seen. Like, you know, we've seen AOC come out with the Green New Deal. Um, you know, Trump's got the, the wall. And, and like, it, it seems like there are some fairly uh, significant policy proposals out floating in the ether. But is it um, like, are you referring to then the inability to actually kind of make these policies happen or our inability to compromise and come up with with balanced policies that reflect both sides? Like, where, where do you see the, the biggest stumbling block on implementation? I guess I would say a couple of things. So uh, one, yes, in 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 recent times, you're seeing some kind of big um, ideas out there. And that's that's good that at least we're talking about big ideas. I don't see any I don't see any sign that there is a path to making progress on the, on some of those. And I'll give you some examples, right? Like we can't even I mean we can't even pass a freaking budget <laughs> at the federal level, right? We are going CR to CR and we've been doing so for a long long time. Like if you can't even get together to pass a budget, how the heck are you going to tackle you know, healthcare. How the heck are you going to tackle Social Security? How the heck are you going to tackle Medicaid, Medicare? And I mean, it, these are like the the we can't even deal with with those issues. And quite honestly, the only time where we've been able to pass, I mean, if you think about it, right? And it like go go back the last twenty five years. The literally the only time I can think of that our 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 Congress, our our country, our federal government has been able to enact kind of large transformational. Um, legislation has been when one party had veto-proof margin in the Senate yeah. and a majority yeah. in the House and controlled the White House. And even then, <laughs> that was a challenge. And really, the only example of that is is, is Obama's first two years when he had that majority. And you know, and and I think that's 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 not a good sign for us. Is that the only way something gets done is when you have just absolute control over Washington? And I, you know, and as as we've shown, it means that you're also going to enact legislation that is not um, really sustainable. I mean, you know, Obamacare and and the the financial reform legislation are such that because of the way they were enacted and because of the target that they instantly had on their back, it, it you know it's constantly you know the other party when they get back in control is just going to be looking at making picking at it. And so, it's it's um, I I don't I don't think our system right now is configured to to kind of take on some of these larger things. And so, you know, to the extent, to the extent at some point we're going to have to enact kind of uh, transformational uh, climate legislation, like, like something, something akin to the Green New Deal, although I think there's different ways of getting at that, you know, I don't think our system is such that can take that on right now. And that, that worries me because um, I, I don't think that's a good thing for, for our country. I guess as somebody who hails mostly from the left, I'm guessing I know where you're going to go on this particular side of things, but I'll ask it anyway. Uh, the kind of generic counterargument I've heard from uh, from the right is maybe the idea behind the checks and balances was precisely that uh, the government shouldn't be doing a whole heck of a lot. And and maybe it's actually okay that we have this gridlock. I, I don't know that they would view the gridlock as a positive, but just generally that, you know, if there's gridlock, maybe that's part of the idea. Maybe we shouldn't be in such a hurry to say that there's a problem here. Obviously, maybe gridlock plus big government is, isn't something that anyone's happy about. But um, what do you make of that argument? Do, do you see that kind of making sense in, in the modern era? I get that argument. I mean, don't get me wrong. I get that argument, and and I and I understand that you know the part of this the 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 function of our system was that it was supposed to be hard to make kind of transformational change, not just outside of kind of legislative transformational change, but certainly you know amending the constitution and all that stuff. Very hard. A lot of barriers. Founders put a lot of barriers in in place to uh, to that happening. That all being said. The fact is, we're not even taking care of the the basic functions of of the government. And so, while while we are allowing we are allowing certain areas of the federal government and and, and the federal budget to, I guess, grow and and whether that's a positive or a negative is a different issue. But um, there are whole areas of of function that we're kind of neglecting. I mean, the fact is, you know, the 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 U.S. U.S. government, the the most indispensable economy and government on the planet, you know, was was downgraded, right? That's that's a disaster, you know, and and that should never happen. And anything that happens due to to just kind of complete 
to complete uh, inaction and, and um, gridlock at, at the federal level. And so I, I appreciate that argument that, yeah, this actually keeps um, bad things from happening. That's probably true. But we're not dealing with even the things that we we all acknowledge. People on both sides of the aisle acknowledge uh, we, we need to deal with, and I, and I think that's that's deeply deeply frustrating. And you know, from a local government perspective, I can say that you know here we are. We're trying to deal um, with some of these big issues, right? We're trying to deal with infrastructure investment. You know, we are trying to deal um, with uh, with educational equity. You know, we are trying to deal uh, with with economic growth and how do we how, how do we grow our economy locally? We could sure use we could sure use partnership from the federal government and at least tools to help us do that. You know, I think right now, unfortunately, we're, we're, you know, in some ways, the federal government standing in the way of, of us tackling some of these issues. That's, that's, a, that's, that's a real problem. Mm. And where do you think this, this sort of obstruction tends to come from psychologically? I mean, I, I imagine it, at some point there's someone who says, you know, I'm going to refuse to work with the other side. I mean, it, it seems pretty clear that, you, you know, you need some sort of bipartisan support. As you said, if you're going to pass any legislation outside a context where one party dominates the House, the Senate, and, and the White House. So do you think it's predominantly an actual sort of partisan gap, or is it the way that partisanship is, let's say, consumed and advertised? Is it is it the pressure of, for example, social media? You know, one person says, I'm going to have a conversation with someone from the other side. I'm going to entertain these ideas. Um, I may not like them, but I'm willing to compromise. All of a sudden, there's a dog pile. Um, or is it that people genuinely do believe in the um, sort of entrenched partisan uh, views that they that they manifest that they advertise to the world. I mean, first of all, I think you, you can't look at where we are in Washington um, right now and not place a lot of blame at the way we choose most of the people who are in certainly in the House of Representatives, most of the people in in, in the Congress, and they're chosen in uh, Democratic or Republican primaries and in districts that are drawn uh, one way or the other. And, and and I think the fact is, I mean, uh, where we where we sit right now in the 8th Congressional District of Virginia, uh, you know, and, and I, I, we have a great member of Congress and I, and I respect the heck out of him, um, but the fact is Congressman Don Beyer has to answer to the primary electorate of the 8th District, the Democratic primary electorate of the 8th District of Virginia. Um, he really has no reason to even, um, I think he does do a pretty good job of representing the entire district, but he really has no reason to have any attention to the general electorate of this um, district because there is very few circumstances under which he would ever be held accountable by them. And that's, a, that's, that's not really healthy in, in, my, in my mind. Yes, this is a strongly democratic district. That is true. There's no question about it. Um, but having having um, him solely accountable to a you know twenty percent a twenty five percent at best turnout in a June primary is not is not a good place um, for us to be and unfortunately um, for most of our congressional districts all around the country that is the reality there are very few truly competitive districts and so these primaries are where where it counts and. And in these primaries is where we we punish folks who are uh, perceived or actually uh, reach across the aisle and try to try to get things done. And I mean, it, it, I mean, gosh, you know, ask Eric Canner, right? Like, you know, look at look at members who I would argue didn't even really do much to reach across the aisle, but even the perception um, that somehow they have um, more in temperament. Than uh, than actuality, they have uh, have been too you know too accommodating. Um, they are they are punished in these um, in these primaries, and so I, I think that's a that's a dangerous place for us to be. And I think it's at the root of a lot of um, a lot of what's going on. Now that doesn't explain. I mean, that doesn't necessarily explain what's going on in the Senate, right? I mean, those 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 are statewide elected officials, and and. Uh, they're representing their uh, their folks now. I think it's also it speaks to why the Senate's a little different sometimes um, uh, about how they take on issues. But I I, um, I I do think that's a troubling um, place to be, you know. And I think and I think at the root of that is is the way we do uh, districts. I find it fascinating that, especially as somebody who you know is on the inside of this, has a lot of friends, you know, in in Congress and whatnot, that your your mind goes straight to you know, well, what if we put ourselves in the in the mindset of a of a congressman or a congresswoman, and like, what are the pressures that are applied to them 
at the level of, as you say, the, the, um, the primary electorate. I wonder how many people actually think about that actively in terms of what it's doing to the, the incentives that drive political polarization in the House, but then even more broadly, that'll have a trickle-down effect. I guess when you have, you know, you, you mentioned your, your local congressman, but obviously there are Republicans running in, in carefully gerrymandered Republican districts as well, where the pressures are the same but opposite. Without question. I mean, you know, and, and you, you saw, I mean, you saw a perfect example of that in uh, in Michigan here with, with Justin Amash, you know, and, and here you had a, you know, here you had a member who, you know, was was always very successful in being elected in his um, in his district, and you know he he did he did something incredibly courageous, and um, you know it's 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 interesting. I mean, I, I think the the sixteen election. It's funny. I, I think let, let me just say this. You know, a lot of folks, particularly on my side of the the aisle, um, came away from the sixteen election incredibly demoralized and crushed and feeling like. You know, our democracy was dead and, and you know, all these kind of horrific things. Um, I will say this. I, obviously, I was extremely disappointed by the 16th election. I think it was a bad um, a, a step for our country. But the one thing that did kind of, I remember in 2014 during the, um, we had an open congressional seat here for the first time in 24 years in, in the 8th District of Virginia. And make me feel very optimistic um, for our country is unlike, what I've seen in my lifetime, I saw an enormous number of Republican friends of mine who uh, drew a line that year and um, and said, you know, I, 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 this is a bridge too far for me. And, and I, honestly, that was that that made me feel good um, because I know as being a you know being a partisan Democrat all, all my life, um, I know how difficult it is to uh you know to step out um of that line when 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 you feel like your party's nominee you know as the saying go right ask too much of of uh of you and you know there have been certainly times over over my time in politics where um i've been less enthused about one of our nominees uh for some office and you know and 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 i can even think of one or two examples where kind of i wish i was more courageous in uh, in calling uh, someone out um, for not being worthy of the office that they were nominated for, and uh, you know, I wish I wish I had a little bit more courage than that. Sometimes, that all being said, um, you know, it, it's it's uh, it's surprising to see that, and you saw that kind of in mass in sixteen. Now, it didn't, you know, it ultimately didn't make much of a difference, but you know, you did see that a lot, and I and I heard from a good many um, Republican friends who either publicly or privately you know, said, listen, I just can't do this. And this is why. And and that made me that made me feel optimistic, at least um, for our future. And so that's why when you see kind of what happened with Justin Amash and, and you, you have someone who who, um, who you kind of jumped out of line and called and said, like, this is this is not OK, you know, and, you know, he instantly got primaried by two or three people and the numbers showed he was uh, he was in deep trouble in a primary there. Um, and you know that's probably that probably figured into his decision to to kind of just opt out. I find this direction that you're going in really interesting. I mean, you're alluding to essentially a shuffling of the political deck. Um, on the one hand, you know you have the never Trump Republicans. Um, certainly, and this is something where I think I spoke to Bill Crystal about this, where he he sees sort of the Republican Party of you know 2005 really being profoundly misaligned with the Republican Party of 2016 and now 2019. I guess on the flip side. It seems as though I think I see a bit of a, a realignment of the political spectrum broadly on, on both sides, where you have these, you know, a lot of Bernie supporters ended up going for Trump in 2016, for instance, and this distinction between you know left and right seems to be a little bit blurred now, where you have the sort of the libertarian authoritarian end of the spectrum, or um, the sort of um, the idea of socialism versus, uh, in some cases, anarcho-capitalism. Uh, the, these notions are being uh, reinvigorated and revived. Have, have you seen that at the federal level, and then have you seen it even trickle down to the local level in terms of its influence on on municipal politics? Well, I, I think we've you've definitely seen that at the federal level, um, and certainly within the Democratic Party. Um, I mean, there are, you know, in in some ways, you know, I I I don't think well, I I think people underestimate to the extent that which uh, President Obama was able to, through sheer kind of power of his his charisma and 
his political skills, he was able to paper over some very real divides um, within the party and keep those um, divides um, under wraps, if you will, for, for eight years. And that's, and that's uh, a testament to his, his skill um, in the party. And, and I think you're seeing some of that now out in, in the open. I think um, there's a couple very real issues that are out there. And, and I think they played a factor in what happened in 16. Um, you know, I think the, the biggest of which is um, is trade and, and how the party thinks about trade and, and capitalism and how capitalism can serve the country and its population. And, and I think part and parcel with that is um, how the party thinks about organized labor and the role of organized labor in, a, in, a, in, in 2019. And I, I think those, there are very real divides in the party on that issue. If we're, you know, not united behind a nominee and we're just having a food fight in the party, that's tough to reconcile um, because I think you have on the one hand, you have kind of the, the, the Bill Clinton, you know, you know, free trade uh, model that if we make deals and, and trade with uh, the rest of the world, it's going to ultimately bring the standards and the rest of the world up and it's going to help us. Yes, there's going to be some, um, some, uh, some displacement here and there, but by and far, it's going to be good for us. And then you have, um, you know, kind of the Bernie and to a lesser extent, the Elizabeth Warrens, the world who, you know, feel like, you know, no, this, this trade has been bad for us. And the great irony is, you know, the, the Bernie and the Elizabeth Warrens of the world, at least on trade, have a lot more in common with, with kind of where Trump was coming from on, on trade than, than they do with, um, with uh, where the Clinton side of the party was. And, and really to a, to a certain extent where Obama was as well. Um, although I think, you know, he tried to have a little bit more modern version of where Clinton was, but, you know, so I, 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 I think it's, um, it's an it's an interesting place we find ourselves in on those on those issues, and I think you're right. There is some realignment um, going on there, and and that's going to probably continue, and it and it's going to depend on kind of what those most important issues are for people about how that how that plays out. Exploring that realignment a little bit more, there are sort of uh, I don't I don't know if to, I should call them edgier candidates, um, but candidates with with some fairly significantly new kinds of ideas to propose. I'm thinking here in particular on economics of Andrew Yang, Tulsi Gabbard, who've come out in favor of universal basic income. Um, obviously, these proposals are, are quite radically different. In in some cases, they have a libertarian flavor to them. In fact, I think Andrew Yang might have cited Milton Friedman at one point as having <laughs> been one of the people who agreed on on the idea of UBI. Um, yes. What do you what do you make of their influence on the party today? Do you see the party actually moving in that direction, or do you think it's more likely that, that it moves in the sort of Bernie Sanders democratic socialism direction? Are they incompatible? Like, how do you think the party is going to reconcile those? You know, as a short answer, I don't know. I get the sense that there's clearly a following for you know these uh, you know kind of transformational looks at what government's role is to um, in the economy. I also get the sense that you know you have a population of of certainly uh, millennials and and the generation behind that have grown up with you know parents who have changed careers multiple times um, you know not not living off uh, defined uh, benefit pensions most of this population who is coming to the workplace now um, probably doesn't even know a union member to speak nothing of of having one in their family you know and so I I I think that that perspective about the role of government in our economy is is very different from even what I was exposed to. Um, and growing up, but I think they also are more. This population is more cognizant of the the base inequalities that exist, and 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 you know they're gonna they're gonna look to someone to fix those. And so if it's not if it's not uh, government, then who? And I and I think they acknowledge that um, that uh, that the private sector is not able to or or inclined to solve those on their own, nor nor perhaps should they be expected to. And so I I think it's. Um, it, it, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I, I, I think it's in some of that, I think will be that the primary will sort this out. You know, I, I also think that um, everyone needs to be careful, specific to Bernie, um, about playing too much about what happened in 16 into what happened in, what happened in 20. Um, you know, Bernie was the only other option in the end um, in that race. And I think we, we as, as is being played out right now in 2020, it's clear that um, some of that um, allegiance that he saw in 16 was more about the fact that he was the other option and less about him specifically and necessarily his ideas. 
And and so we're watching that play out right now as the candidate as the voters in this this year have a lot of other options, um, and and they're choosing them. <laughs> they're they're very much choosing them. And so, you know, I mean, we'll see how this plays out um, as we go forward. But it's a, it's a fascinating time to watch. Well, yes, I guess speaking of all those different ways, as you say, of being a Democrat. I mean, you've got all these options, all these candidates. Um, what is it? at your core that makes you a Democrat then? Like, what are the, the defining features of uh, the Democratic Party as far as you're concerned and what makes you gravitate towards them? Well, so like most, I'm a Democrat because my parents were a Democrat, um, were Democrats. And, um, you know, I, both my parents were federal government employees and, um, and I grew up kind of seeing uh, the federal government as an entity that, you know, could, could do, could do good, could do positive in our country. And, you know, I, I think in the end, one of the, one of the areas that makes, that separates the parties is the view of government and the role of government. You know, I've always been um, probably more, certainly on fiscal matters, more moderate than most. And even in uh, in my uh, elected office in Alexandria, I'm certainly more the, uh, the the one who's arguing for more restraint on on the expenditure of tax dollars and and want to keep government at a level that is uh, reasonable. But I also recognize that government has a role in a government that is well managed and and funded to uh, fulfill the responsibilities that it has for it is uh, is essential um, is essential to to our way of life and and I I think. For me, that's what I think separates the parties, at least at its base level these days, um, is, you, you know, there, there is still, and I, and I think I think Reagan did a very good job of articulating that for the, the right, that, um, that view of, you know, no government's an obstacle versus um, government as a facilitator. Now, that all being said, right, I, I, I feel like there is a, you know, sometimes we get, um, we get too, too far out there with the role of government. I, you know, I, I actually thought Mitch Daniels um, uh, did as good of any job of articulating this. And I, I saw it in an article years ago where, you know, here he is, a Republican. I think this was when he was, uh, I guess he was, when he was governor of Indiana. Is that right? Yeah, he's governor. So he was, um, he had massively expanded this program of, um, of doing these uh, home visits for lower-income parents, we have the program here in Alexander. We call it Healthy Families, but um, basically going out to visit uh, new parents once they come home with their babies, and and helping them access services, and and looking for signs of child abuse, and and all this stuff. And um, he was criticized by some on the right who were like, "Why are you, you know, you're hiring all these people? You're expanding this government service. What are you doing?" And uh, and he's like, listen. Well, first of all, the data show that this um, you know prevents uh, child abuse, reduces our expenditures in a lot of different areas, as well as ensures people access um, healthcare services and things like that. And he said, plus, he's like, you know, I have a simple philosophy. He's like, I pull open the phone book, and he's like, and I look in the phone book, and he's like, in the yellow pages, if I do not see um, the service um, that uh, government is being asked to offer um, in there, then it's probably a role that government needs to perform. And I thought that was an interesting uh, way of looking at it. Uh, maybe not a foolproof way, but uh, you know, he's basically arguing that if, if the private sector ain't offering it and it's something that's essential, then it's probably a government uh, a government role. And uh, and you know, so for me, I think that's generally how how I've um, approached things. I I definitely, um, as I said, I'm you know sometimes arguing more for uh, restraint on 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 spending but i think generally the for me why i'm a democrat is um because i feel like government does have a role in addressing the challenges that a lot of our population sees i think that should be a a, a role in partnership uh, with the private sector um and should be uh, carefully managed but um but i, I think that's, a, that's an important role so that's what one thing i found really interesting about your answer was the very first part of it I mean, you, obviously, you articulated a very interesting, coherent philosophy about, you know, the role of government, the importance of government. But you actually started by saying, it's because my parents were Democrats. Absolutely. Th though I'm sure, you know, that's part tongue-in-cheek because you have thought this through. I, I think that element, that ingredient of sort of mindful introspection is something that really seems to be genuinely missing from the political class and from the armchair politicians among the Twitterati and so on. Um, where, where people sort of are pretending to some degree to themselves, it seems, 
that that they have this sort of free agency, this ability to objectively look at facts in a nonpartisan analytical way. And, and it just it, the moment you said that, my first thought was, oh wow, this is a guy who would be much easier for a Republican, say, to deal with, or for someone who disagrees with them to deal with, because you come out and say, look, there's a certain deterministic element to my upbringing. I, I'm, I'm not fully um, in charge of you know, my own thought process, so therefore, implicitly, I could be at fault at any time. Um, is that something that you, you uh, find yourself like leveraging, um, let's say, in a mindful way when you have conversations with people you disagree with? I mean, you know, this is this is something that this is honestly another thing that 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 concerns me a little bit, and you know about about kind of where we're at. I mean, first of all, I mean the political scientists will tell you right that the that uh, you know political culturization does come from parents, um, and that and that most people are uh, most people follow the the political um, uh, path that their parents have have uh, have plowed, and you know it's also why it's such a bizarre i mean i i obviously live in you know i live in delray um in uh, in alexandria and you know this is a this is a 75 percent uh, maybe 70% democratic city and i live in the more democratic part of a democratic city right um and so uh, it is it is you know the republicans in our neighborhood are unusual um and even more unusual is the mixed couples um, you know, I know uh, a few where, uh, you know, you have a Republican and Democratic uh, married couple, um, but they're very much anomalies. And, you know, and one of the things my wife and I are constantly con cognizant of and I think um, uh, worried about is that we feel like like everyone we, we deal with is a, is a Democrat, right? Like the people we hang out with at parties, you know, the places we go and and um, and it's we don't run into a lot of um, a lot of Republicans. We don't think our kids are exposed to a lot of um, Republicans, and that kind of worries us a little bit. Um, I, don't, I don't think it creates a good uh, a good kind of a diversity of thought around around everything that we're doing. And so I I um, and I feel like too much of uh, too much of America is probably in that. Um, in that realm right now, where um, most of your life you're hanging out with people who are are uh, similarly minded as as you are, and so it's not just Facebook and Twitter; it's real life. Um, you know that 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 we're we're putting ourselves in these kind of echo chambers um, constantly, and 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 not not uh, challenging that um, that thought. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that's definitely a, a challenge uh, for us, and 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 certainly something that that I've seen. And you know, growing up, I mean, we we had we had friends. Uh, my parents had friends who were Republicans, and I certainly um, we knew who they were, and occasionally would have you know some healthy debates um, with them. Uh, but you know, most of our friends similarly minded. Yeah, one of the the weird, almost contradictions I find nowadays in terms of um, the state of the increasingly polarized state of things is the fact that things are especially polarized in a in a day and time, a day and age when we are best placed to understand that that polarization is irrational. And so just to unpack that a little bit, we have the ability now through machine learning to make algorithms that can predict people's political views. And, you know, say you're on Twitter or, you know, I collect a whole bunch of demographic information about you, I can probably make an algorithm that will sort you into the Democratic or Republican buckets with like something like 90% accuracy. And so... It, it it always seems to me that, you know, if someone were to apply an algorithm like that to me, and if that algorithm were to correctly guess my political views, that I, I should, if, if I'm thinking about things right, I should experience a moment of profound humility because it, it points precisely to like this purely deterministic, mindless uh, drone nature of our of our entrenched political views, uh, which is why, incidentally, I, I found your sort of moment of introspection there so interesting. I hope that you know, as people become more and more aware of um, of the role, not only like you got algorithms on Twitter that are correctly sorting us in this way, uh, and that are then compounding our own pre existing views by feeding us more and more of the same um, material. I'd hope that you know stuff would improve as we would learn more about algorithms and how how effectively our behavior can be predicted, but it seems like things have kind of gone in the other way. Well, you know, I was at a party a couple nights ago, and, you know, so my, my wife and I have been together actually for almost uh, 21 years in a couple of days, um, and, we've, and we've been married for um, almost 18, and, 
the um you, you know so we were before the the dawn of online dating and all this stuff and uh, fortunately thank god um and um the uh, but you know we have a lot of friends who are still going through this uh, some of them on their seconds now and uh, trying to figure this out or online dating for the first time and you know it, it was always intrigued me that i feel like there's an interesting sociological dissertation for someone's phd about how the the online dating um capability and functionality is changing the way people um date and you know you're you're ending up with um with the uh, far more similar people coming together you know when you run into some yeah. supermarket you know you don't you don't know their uh their, their full background you haven't been per perfectly matched um but uh but you know today people are getting these perfectly matched uh, couples and uh, you know i imagine politics is a big part of that um you know, I, again, I have I have friends. I mean, we, we have one who, you know, he the husband. Um, so the, the wife works today for um, I won't get in specifics, but works up on the hill in a in a very serious uh, Republican position, a very high ranking Republican position on the hill, and uh, and the husband um, uh, ran um, uh, Democratic political communication for some of the largest campaigns in the country for years, and you know, so partisan partisan people, Republican and Democrat. And, uh, and they've been married for you know twenty plus years, and um, and and they're raising two kids in the neighborhood, and uh, you know, and I, that's such an anomaly. And it's not just you know dating and all that, but you know, it's in all kind of areas of our life we're able to more carefully um, target how we associate, where we probably weren't able to do that in the past. So the technology is enabling us to self-sort uh, far easier than than we probably were able to in the past, and that's. Uh, that's a little worrisome too, and you know, and you think about it, even even um, even in the way we choose our housing and and kind of you know the data that we can access now, and um, you know, I, it's you know, you wonder if that's all kind of playing a role in 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 how we're how we're um, exacerbating our challenges, you know. Yeah, well, I guess one one other ingredient too that I could imagine uh, sort of playing into this is the media that we consume itself. So not just like are self-selecting for the media that we consume, but also the, you know, increasingly, let's say, clickbaity nature of a lot of the media we do consume. Um, I was, uh, I was reading a book called Trust Me, I'm Lying, actually. I don't know, have, you, have you heard of this book by any chance? I haven't. I haven't. I have to look into it. I mean, you can sum it up in really one statistic and then the implications of that statistic. So th this book dives into the average amount of time that a, um, a writer for uh, Vice, Vox, Breitbart, Salon, The Daily Wire, whatever, whatever publication, sort of clickbaity publication you can think of. So the, the average number of blog posts that one of those writers has to put out in a, in a day. And that number is somewhere between 8 and 12, which is the, the moment that you hear that number, like it's easy to go, oh, eight, eight and 12 in a day. Okay, I guess that's quite a few. And then you, you start to do the math and you're like, that is more than one an hour. In some cases, it's more than one every half hour. Yeah, and then, and then you start to do the, the math on that and propagate it forward and think, okay, well then, I guess that means that every blog post that I see or the median blog post that I see on Twitter that has a headline like, um, you know, Trump does bad thing X or Democrats are evil because Y, um, these have all had a, a collective total of something like 30 minutes of actual thought plus writing go into them um, with all the implications for research and fact-checking that that would imply. Where still, the average person just reads the headline, and this is what a lot of these outlets are counting on. And so an awful lot of the opinions that we've formed are like built on top of this shaky foundation. And um, anyway, it was, it was a like a fascinating exploration of that. I imagine... That playing into the sort of maybe sh arguably shortening the American attention span really reduces the amount of, of nuance that you can afford to bring into discussions politically. H have you found that? Like, are, are you do you find yourself sort of a little bit um, a little bit like shackled to having to appeal to, to limited attention spans or making your points short rather than nuanced? Is that an issue? Well, you know, it's funny. Like. I this is where, and we haven't talked enough about this, I think, during the conversation. That's my fault. But, you know, th this is where I think the, the local government is tr has traditionally been different. You know, I think, you know, I, I have friends, again, state level and, and, and federal level, and they, um, you know, when you run for, when you run for Congress, when you run for um, uh, uh, General Assembly, 
you know, it's very much a, 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 a lot of binary issues, right? You know, are are you are you pro-choice or are you not pro-choice, right? Um, are you uh, you know are you for gun control? You're not for gun control, like like what what like you you spend most of your time um, kind of checking yes or no on a variety of different um, issues, and that's the way those campaigns are waged, um, whether we like it or not. And kind of nuance is not not our thing, and. You know, but in, in local government, um, you know, very few of the issues um, that we deal with are reduced to kind of a yes or no uh, question. And, you know, like I, I, I have a thing and it's bordering on um, obsessive where when I do, if I can, if I can possibly handle it, and if I can possibly control it, um, I refuse to participate in a, in a candidate debate. Um, where uh, I will be asked to do a yes or no question, um, and I, I will I will resist at all costs. Sometimes I've had to break down because I just haven't had a choice. But um, but I will I will like when, when they provide the rules in advance or whatever, and I will say like I just I will not do this. Um, and and mostly it's because I feel like um, like I said in local government I don't think many issues can be reduced to a yes or no. I, yeah. think, it, I think it kind of game show eyes is um, our discourse. Um, and, um, and there's just, there's very few issues that, that are that simple, certainly not in local government. Most of our issues are around nuance. And so, you know, we have the, unlike the federal level, but like the state level, we have, we have to balance our budget every year, right? And so, you know, when you ask me like, are you, are, do you support higher taxes or not? You know that's not a that's not a that's not a question that I can answer right because it's 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 dependent on a lot of things like what are our what are our revenue estimates you know what are what 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 services are being impacted you know all that's more of a of a um, of a, uh, a a nuanced question that um, that we have to take on and we take it on every year when we when we uh, work to balance our budget and so I I think the um, at least at the local level, we've traditionally had a much more nuanced discourse, and you know our debates and 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 when we're knocking on doors and talking to voters on their front step, it's a it's a much more complicated conversation as opposed to, hey, I'm going to go to Washington and you know fight for this or fight for that. Um, you know, here we're dealing with really complicated issues. You know, now. Um, you know, I, I can tell you that, you know, if you ask voters in the city of Alexander, I've been through now five campaigns in the city, um, you know, they'll tell you I'm generally a more uh, a more pro pro development. Most of our land, most of our fights in local government around land use. So I'm considered a more pro development um, guy. And that's certainly true. Um, and I think my record shows that. Right. Um, I'm I'm probably seen as more of a pro school guy than than most. And um um, but I'm also seen as, as someone who, uh, you know, is is more moderate uh, on on spending, and and those are all things that I think I, you know, people accumulate uh, an assumptions about me over time. But it it's it's less kind of binary than I think you see at the at the federal and, and state level, and I kind of like that. It's why I like uh, local government versus versus other levels. Is I think it's it it, it requires a much more nuanced uh, kind of thinking. Um, not just in our campaigns, but in government. And, and is that because of the immediacy of the constraints? Like you mentioned, you know, you've got to balance the budget every year. Um, I assume there are other immediate constraints that play into that. Is it because of that you think, or is it because the at the federal level? I mean, I guess almost by definition, you need a sort of one size fits all sweeping solution. Uh, yes, I mean, I, I, yes, I, I think it's the immediate accountability of of doing it. You know, also, I you know, I'm one of seven, right, on the city council, and you know, to do anything, I have to convince three other people. Um, and, you know, at the at the General Assembly, if you're in the House of Delegates, there's 99 other people there. In the state Senate, there's 39 other people. You know, you're, you're, the, the, the chance that you would be singularly accountable um, on any issue is pretty rare. Um, you know, you're, you're usually part of a group that is um, either doing something or, or not doing something. And so I, I, I think I think the the accountability is very different. I mean, God, you look across. I mean, look across the region, right? Um, you know, I'll give you a great example, right? The chair, the outgoing chair of the Prince William County Board of Supervisors, um, you know, Corey Stewart, right? Arch conservative, uh, uh, you know, member of the Board of Supervisors there, 
you know, here's a guy who at multiple occasions during his time on the on the Prince William County Board has voted to raise the tax rate, right? And um, you know, I'm not I'm not criticizing him for him. I think it was probably the the right decision when he did it, but the nature of of the job he's in requires that he has to make um, decisions like that. Whereas I suspect if he was at the um, if he was in the General Assembly or if he was in Congress, um, he would have probably um, uh, been able to prevent that from ever happening. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and and it's just the nature of the job um, the job he's in right now. And so I I I think yes, I think the immediate accountability um, drives that. Um, it's a, it's a different set of um, decisions, and and it's it's more. Uh, you know, it's more complicated. I mean, I, I tell this story a lot, and I'll tell it again. Uh, it kind of, it, it gives you an example. It's also some some of it. I think is this area. Um, I, I think this area has a different um, set of expectations for our elected officials than. Um, well, I'd say the whole region. Um, you know, I, I think it's the education level. It's the it's the um, it's the involvement and knowledge in what's going on in Washington. Um, that just drives it. And, you know, I, the story I tell a lot is a, it's an article. God, it's probably a 25 year old article at this point. Um, but uh, Tom McMillan, um, who used to be, um, he had the uh, eighth congressional seat in Maryland um, before Connie Morella did. And then and now, um, uh, now I guess it's Jamie Raskin, but it was, um, uh, what's his name? And um, Chris Van Hollen had the seat too. Um, so he had the seat um, a long, long time ago, and Tommy McMillan was a former basketball player, um, but he also went to Ivy League schools and was um, was a real thinker. And um, you know, so he used to ride the subway back to his district um, in in Maryland, and he said that he would talk to his fellow members of Congress from all over the country, and um, they were always baffled by him because. They would say, oh, yeah, you know, I go back to my district, you know, once or twice a month and, you know, I tell them I'm still pro-choice and I'm still, you know, for keeping their taxes low and I'm still for this. And and they'd be like, yeah, go get them. Go back to Washington and go, go, go have at it. And, and that was it. And he said he go he get on the subway and ride back to his district. And, you know, people come up to him and be like, you know, Congressman McMillan, um, how did you vote on the motion to recommit with instructions on the omnibus, um, you know? And, and the level of kind of uh, nuance and, uh, and understanding that uh, most folks in this area have about how the system doesn't work up in Washington is far different from anywhere else in this country. And I think sometimes we get, we get kind of, uh, uh, we, our mindsets just get very screwed up here because we, we think this is normal and it's not. It's not, yeah. not really normal. So. It's a really interesting, like, special case. I, I guess every district or every um, every city is going to have sort of a, a similar point of, I don't want to call it myopic focus, but like a similar point of focus, whether it's, you know, economically, if you're in a rural area, the focus on exports and is, is going to be bigger and, and so on. Um, and it's, it's a really cool perspective. Well, um, I, I want to wrap up then with coming full circle on, on a point you raised at the, the outset of the conversation when you talked about uh, some of the fundamental changes that you felt would have to be made to the decision-making processes in, in Washington in order to really kind of move the ball forward on some, some of the important legislation, some of the important um, philosophical questions to some degree that we're trying to address and, and struggling with. Do you think in making the changes that are needed to move forward on those things, do you think that municipal politics might have something to teach the, the sort of federal uh, side of things? Like, is there something we can learn from seeing this more unified tone that you're talking about uh, at the municipal level to address sort of the political polarization at the federal level? Without question. I mean, I, I've always felt that um, we could we could all, um, our system, both at the state and federal level, would be a lot better if we had more people that had been in local government. Um, I, I think that there's a set of experiences that you gain in local government that you just can't pick up anywhere else. And um, and, and, I, and I think uh, one of the challenges uh, perhaps we're having right now is we are seeing on both the left and the right, a lot of people who um, are first-time candidates who are jumping into Congress, jumping into Senate, heck, even jumping into president. Um, and and I, you know, it is it is very odd to me that um, politics is the one um, area apparently in American life where uh, where we don't celebrate experience. Um, and um, and you know, you would you would never walk into an operating room and say, "Find me the surgeon who has never done a single surgery." Like I want them to operate on my brain. Right, you just wouldn't do that. But for whatever reason, in politics, we seem to celebrate the kind of lack of experience. Now, 
I, like, you know, is it really helpful to have people who, um, who have um, uh, experience in regular life, if you will, um, and, and, and having a day job and, and balancing budgets and running businesses and raising kids and all that? Yes, absolutely. That's really, really helpful. It's one of the things I love about local government is that I can maintain a regular day job. Um, and I do. I have, a, I have a day job. And and I think it gives me really valuable perspective. I'm riding the metro every day. I'm, you know, I'm I'm do, I'm I'm bringing my kids to and from soccer games. I'm I'm doing kind of the normal things that people um, people do. And I think that helps give me perspective in local government. But <laughs> it's also really useful to have people understand how to build consensus and um, and operate in a political political sphere. And um, we have a lot of people right now who are coming into politics, and some of our most insurgents on both sides. Uh, who have no political experience whatsoever, and um, I, I do worry about that a little bit. Um, I, I think it's always good to have people bringing new ideas and, and new energy into the system, but I also think it's useful to have people understand how to how to how to operate. Um, and I think uh, local government particularly forces people to um, to to work within a political realm, build consensus in the with with residents and with fellow elected officials, understand. Um, what people are uh, are interested in and, and how to make it work and also work with a staff work with a professional staff and, and how to manage that and um, so I, I I think that's the um, that is the um, I think that that's really valuable and I think that could be helpful um, at, at the federal and state level I, I hope we have more kind of local elected officials who who uh, who, who seek um, these offices um, not me, um, but for the folks who seek these offices, because I, I think it's really valuable in in um, in having those experiences um, right now, particularly, um, especially when you have all these insurgents coming in. I think it's useful to have someone who knows knows how to build consensus. This is a really interesting counterpoint to the the notion of the uh, insider candidate. The, the word insider is almost a dirty word now. Washington insider, and everybody's looking for an outsider, a radical outsider candidate. Uh, sort of an interesting, anyway, argument for the other side of that, which is how can you expect somebody who has not had to historically deal with people of different political stripes to actually be able to do that productively? And I, I think that's a really interesting perspective. Absolutely, absolutely. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm not a you know quote unquote career politicians, right? I get concerned when people have only been in politics. Um, and I and I do worry about that because um, I think you need that perspective. But um, it is useful to have some of these um, experiences. You know, if 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 you've never had people, um, you know, in the in the course of a political campaign, um, beat you up and you know criticize your ideas and and go after you, if you've never had that, um, and the first time you're dealing with that is at a statewide level, the first time you're dealing with that is a national level. Um, that's not that's not good. Um, that's not good. It, it's it's um, you know there there is there is a kind of a toughening up of the ego and and a and a perspective that you develop um, by being in this business for a little while and and just understanding how to how to work with others in in a in a political realm um, because you know there's so many who get in this business and are like I have the best ideas I'm just going to run for office because I have the best ideas and everyone's going to love my ideas and everything's going to be great and and you know everyone has good ideas that they think are great. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's um, you know, how do you take those ideas and take the ideas of others and put it in some place and put it together in a place that actually makes things happen? That's, that's the art. But I think it's a great note to end things on. Um, thank you so much, uh, Justin, for your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, have a great day and thanks so much for uh, hopping on. All right. Thanks for having me.